0: Go to Exodus chapter 12. We looked at the Word as a whole, the Word as a person, then we looked at the, the Word as, as flesh and dwelling among us, then we moved over to talking about the cross. And so now we've been talking about the cross for a few weeks. And last and last week we talked about, um, or last couple of weeks, we've talked about it being pictured in the Old Testament, Isaiah 53 being probably still, in my opinion, the best picture of substitutionary atonement and those kind of things. But today we're going to look at it in a different way from the Old Testament. And the whole theme of our study has been that faith is dangerous. Or our faith, I should say, is dangerous. And so I want to come back to that too because we didn't talk about it a lot. It was dangerous for the Lord last week. But today I want to kind of look more at where it's dangerous for us. I'll show you where I'm talking about. Okay, Exodus chapter 12 is about what? Passover, yep. Alright, so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to go through the story, read it, and uh, then what we'll do is, after we read through the story, and some of you already know that, I know that, then we're going to come back and we're going to piece together a few things, okay? So, it's a fair amount of reading, but that's okay, because if you have a Bible, you'll be reading along, and all will be well, okay? Uh, So, chapter 12, verse 1, And, and first of all, you know the background, but just in case you don't, Pharaoh has had the people of Israel, people of Israel have been captive in Pharaoh's, in uh, Egypt for 400 years. Pharaoh is being compelled, to say the least, to release them that they may go worship the Lord. And uh, they won't. And you know, Moses has come before him and there's the plagues and God has hardened Pharaoh's heart. And in order to raise up, a miraculous events that bring glory to God. So this is where we're picking up. Verse, tw- verse one of chapter twelve is the last, final straw, the final thing. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. If you see a Jewish calendar, our calendar starts when, in our in, from our perspective, yeah, at Christ's uh, coming. Okay. Their calendar doesn't start at Christ's coming. Their calendar starts at Passover. It starts at Passover. So this day is the first day of the first month. It shall be the first month of the year for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to the Father's houses. A lamb for a household. So one lamb per house. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor... Uh, shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each one of you can eat. So what does it mean by number of people? However many each one of you can eat. And they shall make you count, your count for the lamb. So everybody in the home had to be able to eat the lamb. And of course, your neighbors could come over. So in other words, if you live by yourself, a whole lamb's a lot of food. And you gotta, it's got to be gone. The whole thing has to be consumed. So you might go share meal with your neighbor. Your sister or whoever's nearby. Verse 5, your lamb shall be without blemish, a male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, which that's interesting, by the way. It didn't have to be literally a lamb, but it came from that family. You can't take a bull or any of those things. It had to be a sheep or goat. And the reason for the goat is it's cheaper. Verse 6, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month. And the whole assembly of congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. So you're going to keep this thing with your family for 14 days. I don't know if any of y'all have children, but uh, this is brutal. I mean, I imagine you get the puppy and you bring the puppy inside the house and everybody's playing with the puppy and loving the puppy for 14 days. And then everybody, at the same time, everybody, this is important too, at the same time kills the lamb, or their lamb that's in their house. Now, what do you think that does to the family? What do you think that would do to the kids? You really think it's like they draw in the little cartoons where they're all having this little happy, it's Passover, we're killing the lamb? If I was a kid, I'd be dreading this day every flipping year. This will be the scariest day of my whole life. So why would God do something so horrific? Why? Huh? They see and they feel the sacrifice. Why do they need to see and feel the sacrifice? Yes, sin. Sin. I was talking to some guys about this in the jail the other day. We were talking about how ruthless sacrifices were. And I was like, you realize you didn't have to do a sacrifice. You didn't have to kill an animal. You just couldn't sin. I mean, if you didn't sin, you didn't have to kill the animal. So we want both. We want to be able to sin and then also not do something so horrible as kill an animal, God. Well, God, why would you make us kill an animal? Well, why do you want to sin? It's funny how we love to blame God for things. The point is that sin is disgusting, deadly, ugly. It kills those that we love, including ourselves. Okay. Watch, here we go. Verse 7. Then, after they kill it, all of Israel together, they're not all in one place, they're in their homes, it's just they're all going to do it at the same time. Sunset, you could say. Verse 7. Then they shall take some of the blood that, and put it on the two door posts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh of the, of the uh, that night. Excuse me. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted. Thank goodness he let them do that. Its <laughs> head uh, with it. He says let uh, with its legs and inner parts and you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn, so it has to be completely consumed. So it's completely dead and completely consumed. It becomes one with the people who are eating it. Verse eleven In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste, so you can eat fast. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will, I will, you have to circle this, square it, dime it out, whatever you want. I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn. So the angel of death is not some mercenary killer for God. There's no such place that you're going to even see angel of death in your Bible. It's not there. Just God. God is the one who passes through. Now he refers to an angel, but it's not. The idea here is it's God that's moving. I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. And notice, too, that he doesn't say, I will strike all of the firstborn Egyptians. He says, all of the firstborn in the land of Egypt. So it's implied Egyptians, but it's more than that. And he says, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, animals, too, which is interesting. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. Period. So, who is going to survive this if they're firstborn? Huh? Now, he told this to Israel, and certainly Israel's the ones who responded, but this was for anybody, okay? Okay? So, remember, all these plagues have already happened. By this point in time, they're done with Pharaoh, and they're believing your God is God. They can come into your home and be covered. All right? So, the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. That is an awesome statement. Remember that. The blood shall be a sign for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. So, again, when I see the blood, not the angel of death, When God sees the blood on the door, God will pass over you. So God is the killer here. I know that sounds horrible. We don't want to hear it, but it's the truth. But if he sees the blood, he'll pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So this day shall be a memorial day. And you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. you'll keep it as a feast Seven days you're going to eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove the leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leaven from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. That's the first time you see the language of being cut off. But they'll be cut off from the body of Israel. The idea there that uh, leaven causes fermentation, basically, that makes bread puff up. And so the, the imagery there is of sin in the camp that infects all. All right, so he's saying nothing, nobody and anybody in the camp has any of that. Verse 16, on the first day you shall hold a holy assembly and on the seventh day a holy assembly. So it's going to start with a celebration uh, or a um, service and it's going to end with a service. No work shall be done on these days, those two days. But what everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for on this very day, or Feast of Passover, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. Which is cool, by the way, because it hasn't happened yet. He's telling him it's going to. In the first month, from the 14th day of the month at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the 21st day of the month at evening. Okay, seven days. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your house. If anyone eats what is leaven, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land. There are going to be foreigners that are with them. You shall eat nothing leaven in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Verse 21. Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans and kill the Passover lamb. He gives them all the details here. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of his house until morning. For the Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, that's the name, For Yahweh will pass through to strike the Egyptians. So he's going to pass through to judge sin, but he's going to pass over when he sees blood. Okay, that's the picture. And he says, and when he sees blood on the lintel of the doorpost, Yahweh will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Which that's interesting. Because it almost sounds like the destroyer is somebody else. But he said, I will kill. I will do. And it says, verse 24. You shall observe this right as a statute for you, for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that Yahweh will give you, as he has promised you, you shall keep this service. So there's a picture again, as we talked about all through Revelation, of there being a land as well. Verse 26. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? Or when when your kids see you doing this over the years. And why do we do this, Dad? You say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt. When he struck the Egyptians but spared our homes. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. Verse 28. Then the people of Israel went and did so. As Yahweh commanded Moses and Aaron, so they did. Verse 29. At midnight. The Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. Now I'm telling you, again, how many times are we going to read this? Yahweh struck them down. God is the killer here. And I'm, again, not trying to paint him as ugly. I'm trying to paint him honestly. If this bothers you, then you need to read your Bible more. He is a just God. Did he have the right to do this? Well, give me a reason why. There's probably a few, but give me one reason why he had a right to do it. They sinned. First of all, they're all sinners. Yes, he had a right to do it because they were all sinners. What's another reason he had a right to do this? He created them. They belonged to them. He created them. So, number one, he created them. Number two, he, they've all sinned against him, and the wages of sin is death. And, and that's a done deal. The real question to be asking is, why provide a lamb? That's the real question. Always remember that. Not why did God kill all the Egyptians? No. Why did God provide a lamb? That's the question. Watch what he says. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon. Talk about depravity, guys. Nobody is exempt. It didn't matter who you were. And all the firstborn of the livestock even. And Pharaoh rose up in the night. He and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And and two, keep in mind, when it says firstborn, uh, it, it doesn't necessarily mean children. I mean, there's a firstborn, is just the person who was born first. I mean, I'd be, because I'm the oldest son of my family. So, firstborn means the one born first. Okay? So, it says, where was I? I looked away and I lost my spot. 30, yeah. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in the city of Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Uh, that, again, says a lot, but that's because, again, it's not just children. Everywhere that there's a firstborn, somebody's died. So it may have been an elderly person. It might have been a kid. Verse 31. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go, out from among my people. Get out of here. I'm done. Both you and people of Israel and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks, your herds as you have said and be gone and put, bless me also. <laughs> bless his heart. You're going to drag it to the last second. Verse 33, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. Now you know why he said, wear your sandals and where have yourself ready to go and everything else. The people want them out so bad, they're practically dragging them out of their doors and going, get out. So he was saying, when this starts, be ready, because they're going to drag you out and send you on. He says, so the people took their dough that was unleavened. That's another reason why it needed to be unleavened, because they're going to have to carry it with them. Uh, their kneading bowls bound up on their cloaks on their shoulders. These people of Israel had also done as Moses told them. This is previously. You can go back and read it in the story. For they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold, jewelry and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. Now. Real quick pause, we'll come back to this. But I have heard that preached in wealth, health and wealth sermons more than I can tell you. Because they got all the gold and silver and precious stuff from the Egyptians. Because they asked, not because of any other reason than they were told to ask. And and so people then I've heard say, well, it's a thing, it's a thing of faith. They had to have the faith to trust God that if they asked the Egyptians, the Egyptians would give it to them. And, and, and all those things could be true, but that's not the point I'm going to show you what the point is. But let's go on. Verse 37. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sukkot about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. So we could easily guess a million people here. A mixed multitude also went up. What does that mean? Foreigners. There's a whole bunch of Egyptians that are, you best believe they're believers. You know what I mean? Among other people that may have been in Egypt that went with them. So it's a big group went up with them and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. So their animals have been spared because of their faith. And they come up, and it says, And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. What do you think that means? They had to rely on God. God said, unleavened bread because you're not going to have time to wait for it to leaven. And you need a certain amount because we're going to go a certain distance, and then I'm going to start something else, which was what? What did he do to provide for them? Manna in the desert, right? Okay, but he's just giving them a step at a time. So first step is you get this and you go. So then he says verse 40 at the time the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 400 the time the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years at the end of 430 years on that very day all the hosts of the Lord went out or the armies of the Lord you could even say went out from the land of Egypt it was a night of watching by Yahweh that is a great thing to remember too it was a night of Of watching, or a night for watching, to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching, kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. Night of watching for what? Hold on. I'm going to tile, I know I'm giving give you a lot, I'm going to tile this together, but I just want to get a few more pieces and then I'll show you. It's really, you probably already see a lot of it. Exodus 14, turn over after they cross the sea. I'm not going to, there's so much there. Y'all all know these things. There's so much of God in all of this. But in Exodus 14, just want to pick up a few more things. Um, let's see, when Pharaoh comes up on the people and they cry out to God, verse 10. When Pharaoh drew near... Because the people are cornered by the Red Sea. The people of Israel lifted up their eyes. And behold, the Egyptians were marching after them. And they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. That's interesting. Because I think that verse is a great picture of the problem with Pentecostal. All due respect to those whom I love. But uh, with the Pentecostal charismatic movement. Who's always looking for a miracle. This is them to a T. 'Cause what's already happened? Well he hadn't yet, he's about to, but what's happened prior to that? Ten plagues for one. The Passover, uh, they've had a cloud a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire leading them. And now they're cornered at the Dead Sea and all of a sudden now a Red Sea and all of a sudden now they have no faith. People of Israel cried out to God, We need a miracle, we need a miracle. You know, and you know Moses has got to be you serious right now? You need a miracle. But that's what comes with that whole belief system, constantly looking for a miracle. He does end up parting the sea, as you know. He pushes it back, and it literally heaps up on both sides. So it is a dramatic event. They go across on dry land with water heaped on both sides, which is amazing. And then Pharaoh comes behind them, and the water comes back over and crushes all of the armies of Pharaoh and destroys everything he has. And then in verse 30, it says, this is the key one. Thus the Lord saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. Yahweh saved Israel that day from the hand of the Egyptians. And Israel saw the Egyptians dead, washed up on the seashore on the other side. And Israel saw the great power of Yahweh used against the Egyptians. So the people feared Yahweh and Believed in Yahweh and in Moses. This is an awesome picture. They moments ago were doubting for the second or third or fifth or eighth time, who knows how many times. You know, yeah, we're seeing miracles. Yes, you're doing miracles. Yes, you're setting us free, but we're just being free to die. We're just being free to die. You just got us this far and we're going to die. But once the sea parted, once they got to the other side, notice it wasn't, they don't say they looked back and saw the sea closed. They looked back and saw their enemies washed up on the shore. And when they saw their enemies washed up on the shore, they realized that God had defeated their enemies for them. And then... They believed. That's what it says. Then they believed. He has saved them already. He saved them. Their enemies are defeated on the shore, and then they believed, and then they feared, obviously, for sure. And one more thing, look in the song down here in verse 13 they sing a song. Verse thirteen says You have led in your that steadfast love, that word is grace. You have led in your grace. People whom you have redeemed. Look at this. This verse is so awesome. You, God, have led in your grace the people whom you have redeemed or paid for. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode or home or place. That is an awesome verse. You, God, have done this. You redeemed them. You led them. You delivered them. You carried them. You brought them by your power, by your strength. And that's what they're singing. And just a funny little verse. Look at verse 20. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. It's like all of the ultra-conservative no-nos in one sentence right there, you know? (laughs) A female prophet (laughs) dancing, and all the women dancing and hitting tambourines, that'd be witchcraft today, you know what I mean? (laughs) So, as a result of this, look what happens. As a result of this, Exodus 13, verse 1, we hinted at this before, and we're almost done here where we'll get to the point. Then the Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn." This is after the Passover. This is after deliverance. And he says, now, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both man and of beast, is mine. He's bought them. He can say this. verse 11, we read this one last week. But when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and to your fathers, and he shall give it to you, when that happens, you shall set apart... To the Lord, all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be Yahweh's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. We talked about this last week. The donkey can do work. So you want the donkey, you've got to kill a lamb in order to keep the donkey. Or if you will not redeem it, kill it. So it either dies or it has a substitute. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And there's where we talked last week about substitutionary atonement. But that came as a result of this Passover and all of these things. Now, did that happen? You don't have to turn to it. But in Luke chapter 2, when Jesus is born, it says on the eighth day they circumcised him. And then Mary and Joseph, in verse 22 of Luke 2, The time came for their purification according to the law of Moses. They brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what it is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. I didn't read that. You can get to that if you look. When you get to Leviticus, God was good. There was a bull or an ox if you were wealthy. If you were not, then there was a lamb or a goat. If you didn't have that, then there were a birds that you could bring as an offering. And so God set it up so you could come with what you could afford. So they brought... that So what does that tell you, by the way, about Mary and Joseph? If they brought... They're poor. Yeah, they were poor. Okay? They brought the cheapest thing they could bring, according to the law. So back in Exodus, uh, let me show you one last thing in Exodus that's relevant. Exodus chapter 25, jump forward a little bit, okay? This is when they start getting the law. In Exodus 25, and God starts to tell them, they're in Sinai, and God starts to explain uh, what to do in terms of building the tabernacle. Now, you know, the tabernacle is designed by God. God told Moses everything on how to do it. In chapter 25, verse 1, watch this. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel... And take for me a contribution. Didn't say a tithe. Contribution. What does that mean? An offering. Which means they are free to give it. Or not. A contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. So what does that mean? Yeah, if you feel like giving, give. You don't have to. You do not have to. But look what he asked for. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them, gold, silver, bronze, blue and purple and scarlet yarns, fine twined linen, goat's hair, tanned ram skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamps, spices for anointing oil and for the fragrance incense, onyx stones and stones for settings, for the ephod of the priest and for the breast piece and let them. Make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst exactly as I have shown you, as I show you, he's getting ready to, concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and all its furniture so that you shall make it. So I'm going to tell you exactly how to make it. You're going to make it, but you're going to ask for these things. Now where in the world are these people going to come up with all of these things in the middle of the desert? It's what the Egyptians gave them. So how about God saying, so see, that wasn't all about this great big blessing that God blessed them with whatever. It's not about health and wealth and your enemies will come and give you all their fortune. That's not what it's about. God had a plan to build a tabernacle in the middle of the desert. How in the world are you going to build a tabernacle in the middle of the desert? Well, the Egyptians who have enslaved you are going to pay for it. And if you will ask them, they will give it to you. But how cool is God that he's going to let your faith be responsible for doing it? Because you didn't have to. You can keep the gold for yourself if you want. You can keep the linen for yourself if you want. But what's cool is you'll find out, if you read read more of the story, you'll find out that the people bring so much that he has to stop them. Literally, has to stop them. I say, okay, we have enough. Stop. You know, we don't even have anywhere to put all of the things that you keep bringing us. So, what does all this have to do uh, with the cross? Or where's the picture? First of all, you guys already know, and you don't have to turn to this these two because you already know them. But you can make a note of them. 1, 15 through 20 talks about who Jesus is. He says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. By Him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities... All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. What does that make him? God, unquestionably. Verse 18 says "And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, meaning he rose from the dead before anybody. That in everything he might be preeminent. Here it is. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. What that means is... Think about everything that makes God, God was in him. That makes him what? God. It has to. There's no way those two things are not interchangeable. If all of the fullness of God was in him, then he was God. And it says, and through him to reconcile to himself all things on earth and heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So it was his cross and his blood that was reconciling to himself himself. All things, you know, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him and without him. was not anything made that was made. Uh, It says in the word, verse 14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory. Glory as the only son of the father. So you've actually seen God's glory in him, he says. And then he says in verse 18, no one has seen God, the only God. Who is at the Father's side has made him known. Which is an amazing verse. The only God who is at the side of God has made God known. Can't make sense of it, but that's okay. Now, I say all that to say, That person, that person making peace with the blood of his cross, That person, John chapter 1 goes on to say, When John the Baptist is baptizing in verse 29, the next day John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and said what? That does what? you know? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why would he choose the word lamb? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Verse 30 says, This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, Because he was before me. What he's saying is this person has always been. This one that takes away the sins of the world has always been. And verse 34 says, And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So God, the Son, if you want to call it, Who is... The Lamb comes. So let's break it down. This marks the beginning of Israel's calendar. Passover does. It all starts here for them. Okay? It all starts here at this moment. The blood that they had was a sign for you where you live. So thinking about the Passover, we're drawing the lines here. Okay? So the Passover, that blood was a sign for them, and it was a sign for where they live. How was that blood placed on the door? And the side post. The lintels, the top, and the side post. So up here, up here, and up here. What does that look like on your door? You know what I'm saying? I'm not saying it's a fact. I'm just saying it's all here. And that was a sign for them. There should have been a sign. It didn't say that uh, the, the act of the Passover was a sign. It says the blood on the door was a sign. Okay, the sign of the cross. If you ask David Wiley, um, Jesus redeemed us by His blood because He is the blemishless, perfect Passover Lamb that was slain. He paid the redemption price for us by His blood. He paid it, just like the Israelites sung when they got into the de- across the desert that He has redeemed us. That's what he. That's what that means. He's paid for us. He's redeemed us as slaves. He's bought our freedom. And that's the same thing Christ has done. By his blood, he has redeemed us. It says uh, of the Passover, when he begins to tell them how to observe it, it says when you deal with the lamb, no, don't break any bones. Why is that? That sounds insignificant, but it was actually significant. Because it pointed to Christ. No bones were broken when he was on the cross. The blood caused Yahweh to pass over his judgment. Because what he looked at is he saw the blood and he said, Something has suffered and borne my wrath for this. That's propitiation. We already talked about that too. That's a perfect picture of when he looks at the blood of his son and passes over on us. Um, The blood that covered the home it was placed on. But if you weren't in the home, and not covered. So what did that mean you needed to do? The father would put the blood on the home. Okay, father put the blood on the home. But you had to be in the home. There's an element of faith in here and responsibility that you have to be in that home. Alright, but the father's the one that paints the blood on the door, but you've got to be in the home, there's faith, there's obedience in this. The blood was for Israel and those who were in their houses, which means foreigners were invited to be part of it. We talked about that already. First John 2, 2 says, Christ is the propitiation, same thing, for our sins, not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. So John's saying, not just for us Jews, but for all who believe. Because Jesus was all man, what we just read, because he was all man and sinless. He was holy and acceptable as a substitute for man. Unlike a lamb. It was not. Ultimately. It just, it just passed over. It wasn't enough to make us right. Because remember we talked about this last week. An eye for an eye means man for a man. Not goat for a man. Not bull for a man. That didn't work. It has to be man for a man. Because he was all God. He was also the just and the justifier. We talked about that already, too. He is the destroyer here that conquers their enemies. You know, and wins their freedom. People get so tore up when you think God may be the one that killed all the firstborn. But nobody has any problem that God's the one that killed all the armies of Pharaoh in the water. Why is that not a problem? You know, this is the same difference. Life is life, okay? He's the destroyer who conquered their enemies. And for us, he has conquered our enemy. What's our enemy? Sin, death, the grave. That's exactly right. And won our freedom from those things. He's the, the destroyer, but he's also the deliverer. That's provided redemption and escape. He's the one that split the sea. He's the one that provided the lamb. They couldn't have had a lamb if he didn't create a lamb. He's the one that provided the lamb. He's the one that provided the blood of that lamb. He's the one that provided the escape. And he does the same for us through Christ. He's the one that designs a dwelling place with man. He designed the tabernacle for them where he would come and dwell among his people. What has he designed in our case? What has he designed that he would come and dwell in? Our hearts, you, me, you're designed by God. He designed you as a dwelling place. He, de- he That's why every meticulous piece of that tabernacle was decided, even down to the tent pegs, because God designed it. God designed your body, too, to be a dwelling place, all right? He's the one that provides the resources for that place. He provides our needs so that we can grow and do what we do. It was man's responsibility to have faith in him After they were saved, when they came across the sea and they were on the other side and they were saved and they had been redeemed and paid for and their enemy had been had been destroyed and they saw it. It's their responsibility at that point to say, Lord, God, you are God. And we will follow you and we will trust you. We have the same responsibility. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, but God being rich in mercy. Because of the great love with which he loved us when we were dead made us alive. Ephesians 2 says. So he created us for good works that we should walk in them. Or redeemed us for good works verse 10 says that we should walk in them. It's man's responsibility to sacrifice that which he's received in order to build what God has designed. So our bodies yes. Our bodies, if our bodies are the tabernacle, so to speak, then everything God gives us shouldn't be so we can be big, strong, and muscular. That's not what I'm getting at. But it should be used as a resource and for us to fuel this body to do what it's intended to do, which is carry God to the nations. And that's what the tabernacle did. It was moving. It was going to carry God. Okay, Same idea. And so they were supposed to give... From what God had given them. All of those things that God had given them from the Egyptians. They were supposed to give from that freely from their own heart. In order to advance God's position within them. And that's what we're supposed to do. Same thing. Alright. And one more. It was man's responsibility to do this every year back then. It was a night of watching. I mentioned. What were they watching? Why would God establish that as a night of watching? Watching for what? For God to come, every time they thought about that doorpost and that blood on that doorpost as a sign, every time they rehearsed this thing, they should have, which is what they did every year, year after. They still do it. And they weren't just supposed to be doing it in order to make God pleased. They were doing it to watch for something. They should have been watching for a cross and a Messiah and God to come. And be that Passover lamb. But they they missed him. We do the same thing. We do it as a night of remembrance. What night is it for us? Same time period. What Christian holiday is celebrated the same time as Passover? Easter. So what would be the night? Good Friday. Yeah, so we do Good Friday in remembrance of this lamb that was slain for those who are whose blood he's on the heart of S- same thing okay it is a night of watching for us a night of remembering so this is the definition of life redeemed and life with faith you know these verses i'll just give you a handful first corinthians six nineteen. do you not know that your body is the temple of the holy spirit within you you have him from god you're not your own for you were bought with a price so glorify god in your body that ought to make a whole lot of sense right now. You were bought with a price. Glorify God in your body. Uh, you've heard me say this one a million times. It's my about my favorite verse now. Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Romans 12.1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by mercies of God, to present your bodies, what? As a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. You present yourself almost as the tabernacle. You sacrifice your own will, your own design, your own gifts, your own talents, your own uh, money, your own whatever it is. And you say, it's yours, Lord. You can have me use this body and take it wherever you want to take it. So where is the danger then for us? Close with this. What's the big deal? Everything, nothing really sounds all that bad so far that we've talked about. God's been mowing down the enemy and everything, right? Miracle after miracle, you know, let God have your life and your whole life will be so much better. Huh? Not promised that. In fact, you're promised the opposite of that. Listen to me, you are promised the opposite of that. It's one thing that just blows me blows me away about Scripture. It's hard for me to swallow, and I never hear people talk about it very often. It's not just that it could happen; it is promised to happen. I'll give you a few, you know You know when Paul was saved, or when God met Paul on the road to Damascus, when Jesus did and blinded him, and then Jesus. Comes to Ananias and says, Hey, go see Paul. You're going to, Saul, you're going to unblind him. What does Ananias say? Uh uh. Not that dude. He's a contract killer. We all know him. I'm not about to even go near him, God. Are you kidding me? And this is God's response to him in verse 15 of chapter 9. He says, God says, He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the children of Israel. That's awesome. But that's not the end of the statement. The very next words say, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's Paul. I don't know what makes us think that a blessing is an escape from something that he said he, Listen to me, I guess this is what I'm trying to say. Considering who Paul was, I mean, considering who Paul was, I would think if the truth were that you shouldn't have to suffer, then Paul would have never even broke a nail. You know what I'm saying? Because he, he's credited with most of the New Testament. Everything we know about church, really, comes from Paul. And yet God said before he even started, I'm going to show him how much he's got to suffer for my name's sake. 2 Timothy 3.12. You can't beat this one. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be Persecuted. That is a promise. Listen to me. That is a promise. It doesn't say may be persecuted. It doesn't say could be persecuted. It says you will be persecuted. Everybody who desires to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Let me make that real for you right now. You say, well, in America, we don't know what persecution's like. If you don't know what persecution's like in America, well, number one, you're not desiring to live a godly life. I can say that plain as day. Because if you were you would find persecution in America or you'd, God would compel you into another place where you're going to get persecuted. And I say that as a guilty party myself. But if it's, unless the Bible's not true, unless I'm misreading this, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. So if you say, because I'm in America, I don't suffer persecution, that's not true. That doesn't, it doesn't work that way. There's no, but um, unless you're in America, that's not in there, not in there. And no being cussed at does not count. Okay. So if it's saying that you're supposed to be persecuted, then that means you'll know you're living a godly life because you'll begin to run into it. And let me just break it down for you too. It's definitely in America. You can come with me sometime and I'll show you some people that'll let you find it. Matthew five ten, blessed, Jesus says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Blessed are you. Blessed are you when you're persecuted. John fifteen nine, if you were of the world, Jesus says, the world would love you as its own, but because you're not of the world, because... I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Hates you. Remember, the word that I said to you, a servant's not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name because they don't know him who sent me. John sixteen one. Jesus says... Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering a service to God. So why would we do it? If, if if our faith, you know, based on this sacrifice from this lamb and this redemption and these things, if it's that dangerous, why would we do it? Let me turn. have you turn to one last spot. I want you to go to Luke 21 and I'll show you. Luke 21, Jesus is talking about this very thing, and he says in verse 12, talking about the end times, but he says, but before those days come, before that, they're going to lay hands on you. They're going to persecute you. They're going to deliver you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you'll be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Don't miss that. This will be your opportunity. You hear what he's saying? They're going to beat you, torture you, abuse you. You know, like Richard Wormbrand, who did Voice of the Martyrs, He and I'll never forget reading these words. If you haven't read Tortured, for, read Tortured for Christ, I highly recommend it. You can get it free, probably, from their website. But I'm telling you, that book wrecked me. And one of the things he said was... 14 years in an underground prison being tortured because he was a pastor and that's it. Didn't see light. You know, he he was just tortured consistently and they, they didn't want any information from him. They just wanted to torture him for 14 years. And he said he realized the privilege it was to be chosen by God to reach those people. Because in order to reach those people, he would have to be tortured because that's what they did to Christians. But... They were lost. And they needed to hear the gospel. He said so we. He won some prisoners over. He said so we preached. And they beat. And everybody was happy. That's what he says. That's what he's getting at here. This will be your opportunity to bear witness. Settle it therefore in your minds. Beforehand. Decide beforehand. For I will give you. A mouth and wisdom which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends. We're seeing this happen all over the world, aren't we? I mean, this is happening in Muslim countries everywhere. And some of you, they, your family, they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. But not a hair of your head will perish. What that means is... They can do anything they want to do, but they can't touch a hair of your head apart from me, period. So nothing's going to happen outside of my hand. And ultimately, nobody's going to take your life until I'm ready for you to come home. And even then, they can't touch you because you're at home with me. But verse 19, by your endurance, you will gain your lives. God will use you and me To reach people. To save people. He said, I have overcome the world. Take heart. And then he reaches out and he takes us. And uses us to do that. So it's dangerous, but it's an awesome privilege. And the cross makes it all possible. Though they hurt us and they hate us, they cannot destroy us because Christ already paid it all. So we crucify ourselves daily. That's what we do. Put yourself back on the cross daily. Stand in him. And then don't be afraid of anything. That's it, you know. I heard a story about a... I'll close with the story. I heard a story about a wagon train... They were in a prairie, and a fire had begun to engulf the prairie. A wildfire had started kind of coming across the prairie. You know, in a prairie land, you can see a long way. So long way off, and it's coming. But it seems to be everywhere. And as they're trying to outrun it, it's just everywhere. And a man and his son, who are driving one of the wagons, they stop. And uh, the son starts freaking out. He's like, Dad, we got to go. And the train goes on. He goes, Dad, we got to go. And he says, No, we can't. You know, hold on. And he says, We can't stop. It'll catch us. So dad stops. And he takes a, uh, gets a, a tool out and he creates this uh, the kind of just a shallow ditch around a large area. And then he set it on fire. And he burned that whole area up. And then after it finished burning out, he rolled his uh, wagon in there and his horses and his son. And his son is freaking out, terrified, scared as the flames are coming. And the flames come and come and the son is like, we've got to run. He says, son, do not leave this circle. Stay right where you are. Do not go anywhere. And he continues to try to go, but he convinces his son to stay. And what happens? Fire goes right around where they are and goes on. Because that area is already burned. It's already been burned up. And I think about that. That's the idea. Christ already paid. And when we stand in him... Where we are, when that blood is on our door and we stay in the home, he can use our body and our offering in order to do amazing things. Okay, I'm going to go. Lord, I love you.